Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, I've got a really interesting and slightly different episode for you about the connection between Bitcoin, human rights, and refugees. But first, this show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan Bitcoin is putting on a conference. It's called Pacific Bitcoin. It will be on November 10th and 11th this year in LA, California. Now, this is going to be the biggest Bitcoin-only conference ever. You can hang out with thousands of Bitcoiners from around the world, and of course, I'll be there, and I'm looking forward to it. You can catch your favorite Bitcoin educators on the main stage. You can ask questions and hang out with them at the conference and at the events throughout the week. This one is going to be optimized for fun with sports, games, music, photo opportunities, and high fives. This will be like the main event of LA Bitcoin Week, and there'll be all kinds of educational opportunities, meetups, co-working, and parties through the week. So come and join us at the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. It's in LA, November 10th and 11th, 2022. The website is pacbitcoin.com. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can anonymously borrow stable coins against your Bitcoin. So with Lend at HodlHodl, you don't have to sell your Bitcoin. You can take a portion of your coins and put them up in an over-collateralized loan where you are borrowing stable coins and you still hold one key of the three throughout the whole deal. At Lend, at HodlHodl, all these deals are happening directly between users. And so you can set the terms or you can accept the terms that somebody else has put up in terms of how much you want to lend or borrow, the interest rate and the term. So go and check that out. It's over at lend.hodlhodl.com. Now, if you're in Bitcoin mining, you've got to check out Brains. Brains are a software and service provider in the Bitcoin mining space. And they're also putting out a range of Bitcoin mining educational content that you can find over on their blog over at brains.com. And they've also got the insights dashboard, which you can use to check out mining profitability calculators and keep up to date on what's going on in the world of Bitcoin mining. Now, if you have a Bitcoin mining ASIC, you need to also check out if you can use Brains OS Plus. Brains OS Plus gives you more bang for your buck, you can improve your efficiency on your machine by as much as 25%. Now you can point your hash rate towards any pool, but if you point your hash rate towards slush pool while using Brains OS Plus, you get 0% pool fees. So another benefit for you there. So you go and check that out. That's over at brains.com with two eyes. Now for episode 388 today, my guest is Meron Estefanos. She is an activist and journalist, and I met her at HRF's conference, the Oslo Freedom Forum, recently in Oslo, Norway. Now Meron has a really interesting story. It's not the typical one that you might hear on SLP, but we talk about her journey and her activism and journalism in helping over 20,000 refugees and helping to stop human traffickers, as well as how she's using Bitcoin as part of her operation and how she's teaching Bitcoin today. So I think you'll find this one a really interesting one and a little bit different. So without any further ado, on to the interview with Meron. Meron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stefan, for having me. So, Meron, I know you have a very interesting story, and I, uh, obviously I had the chance to meet you recently at the HRF Oslo Freedom Forum, and we were chatting a little bit about Bitcoin and what you're doing with it as well. So, yeah, let's hear a little bit about you and you know what your story is. I am Meron Stefanos. I'm based in Sweden. I grew up here in Sweden. I came to, to from Eritrea originally when I was a teen. So Sweden is my home <laughs> and I'm an activist um, and my activism led me into journalism and um, together with uh, the other activists, we started our own radio broadcasting into Eritrea. Um, I have to tell you a bit about Eritrea. Eritrea is a very close society. It's often referred as a North Africa of, um, as a North Korea of Africa. 
it's a very close society with maybe two to three percent internet access uh, to the population uh, where everybody between the age of 15, 16 until you are 50, you have to do a, a military service as part of um, your national service to the country. Uh, since the country was, um, it's a new country, it's not that new, it's, um, it, was, it became independent in 1991. There was a, a war to liberate Eritrea for 30 years. My parents were activists as well. Uh, my dad, because he was wanted, he had to leave. So that's the reason why we came to Sweden to begin with. And then later Eritrea was liberated. We got our independence in 1991, and, and everybody from the diaspora, we went home and, and we were celebrating, hoping finally now we have a country that we can call our home. Secondly, we are going to have the... the I mean, when we were fighting for liberation or for Eritrean independence, it was for democracy, it was for justice. It was so that no Eritrean have to flee his or her country anymore. So we just overcame one of the oppressor only... This time, it's uh, our brothers and sisters that freed us. We had that pride, and, and, and but later, you know, it just took like a few months uh, for the um, guerrilla leader, who now is our president. Five months after independence, he said, that's it, we don't need democracy. We've never had democracy. It's going to take some time, so let's wait with it. And, and everybody just, no one reacted. Those that reacted were already imprisoned the same year that Eritrea was independent. So slowly, you know, 1997, we were supposed to have a constitution. The constitution was supposed to be implemented. It was already approved by the parliament, by the people. Uh, so the president, because he didn't want to implement the constitution, he started a war with Ethiopia, and which led endless uh, slavery to the young people because the military service or the national, so-called national service was decided that it was going to be a year and eight months as part to build the, the country after independence. But instead, it became totally a militarized state where everybody from age 15, 16, it can take 30 years. My younger brother is another example. He, he went to the military at the age of 15, and he had to escape at the age of 35. Imagine 20 years of your time in a military, no education, nothing. You're just guarding prison. That's what my brother's job was. Until he got a chance, he had to flee. So for this reason, many Eritreans escape from Eritrea. They feel, you know, rather than me being a slave of the state for 30 years, 40 years, because you get discharged when you are 50. So nobody wants to wait. So we, you know, my people believe that fleeing is the only solution. And for this reason, we have become like uh, one of the mass refugee producers in the world next to Syrians. So my activism, when I became an activist, uh, it was just, I had no clue if I wanted to become an activist or not. It was just, I decided to move back to Eritrea. I had no clue that it was a, a, a dictatorship. Once I got there, everybody was like, did you get deported from Sweden? I said, no, I, I, I moved. This is my country. Uh, and everybody was like, please, if you, if you didn't get deported, if I can leave the country legally, so make sure you leave. And nobody was happy that I came back. You know, you would expect... After many years of returning, that the only person that was happy is, of course, my mother, but the rest, everybody was telling me, please leave before they do anything for you. And I didn't understand because for me at that time, it was just, this is a government that, that freed us from our colonizers. How is it possible that people are complaining so much because I've never lived there? I never understood. So it took two years for me to open my eyes and actually understand what was going on in the country because... As a person that haven't done anything for the country, I had more rights 
than anybody. Just because I happen to have a Swedish nationality, a Swedish passport that I can show whenever they stop me, why my younger brother would come for a visit once a year for 30 days and he have to show his ID, I mean, a permission to move around the city, you, you need to have that. And in every block that we go, like the military police would ask us, where is your permission paper to move around the city? And then I show my Swedish passport and my brother have to show his military uh, release passport for a month. But if that expires, then it's automatically prison. Uh, so I've seen all my childhood friends and, and even women, you know, the military services for everybody. It's not only for men. So my childhood friends were in a military for 15 years, some of them 16 years. And that just did not make sense. I kept thinking that would have been me if I had I not grown up in Sweden. That just could have been me. This could have been my life. And it, it woke me up. And, and I said, you know, um, at that time, my son was a year and a half. He wasn't even two. And so I decided I don't want my son to grow in, um, in an undemocratic country the way Eritrea was. So that was that was it. I came back. And, and when I came back, I wasn't deciding to become an activist. But, you know, I saw a lot of those that grew up with me idolizing the, the dictatorship in Eritrea, just like me, because we lived in, in diaspora. We, we never lived there. Uh, so they start saying Eritrea is on the right track. Eritrea is doing great. They just became like the propaganda mouse for the regime, which I could not accept. So the more they start saying uh, things that wasn't untrue, so I had to correct them by saying, no, I've been there. I just came back after living there for two years. Actually, the situation in Eritrea is this. This is what's going on. And the more I told the truth, the more everybody was pushing me away. And, and then I, I start, they start calling me a traitor, which I had to look for other activists that, that thought like me. And, and so I joined um, university students that, that went to South Africa to do their master's from Eritrea. And they decided not to go back and, and they, they wanted to oppose the regime. So that inspired me and I contacted them and I said, can I join your group? And um, so that's how my activism started. And the same group um, decided to broadcast radio into Eritrea because when the, you don't have people that are using internet, the young people, until you are discharged from the military, you're not allowed to, to own a cell phone because to, to have a cell phone, to have a SIM card, you need show that you are discharged from a military. So that means no young person can use, even if you have a smartphone, it's, it's useless because you don't have Wi-Fi on it. The only thing, the only reason people have smartphones is to take pictures with nothing else. There is no use for it. So we decided how do we reach the people and, and shortwave, you know, everybody can afford short, shortwave. So we said, let's do this. And I start doing radio from my kitchen. That's where I'm talking to you right now from uh, in 2006 broadcasting into Eritrea, uh, which led uh, a bit later on, we, we start doing 24 hours satellite uh, radio where anybody can access us for 24 hours. And uh, so my program, you know, from discussing dictatorship in Eritrea, I got tired by 2008 and, and said, that's it. I mean, like, I don't feel like I can reach my people because I'm fighting to to free my people. But at the same time, it, it felt like I'm too far away. I'm in Sweden. Is radio enough? And I, I start questioning my activism and, and, and myself. What exactly is it that I want? I'm not political. I'm not seeking to become like a political leader or anything, but I like helping people. So I said, if I cannot reach the people in Eritrea, at least let me reach the people that are outside of Eritrea. Because as I said, we are the most one of the most refugee-producing countries. So 
I said, like, it's the same thing. Helping Eritreans in inside Eritrea or outside Eritrea should be the same. And 2008, my whole focus shifted into refugee-related issues. Uh, so I started uh, interviewing refugees that were stuck in Libya on their way to, to come to, to Europe. And at that time, the European Union had paid uh, Gaddafi to stop these refugees and migrants from crossing into Europe, and, and which is basically the same thing now. We're just doing uh, history is repeating, which is sad. So at that time, basically, it was the same thing. People were fleeing by boat, drowning. The only difference is at that time, these refugees did not have a, a satellite phone. But from prisons, you know, they could smuggle in phones and, and they start contacting me. And what was supposed to be one interview became a lifetime work. And, and so suddenly, you know, my phone number became a hotline for refugees where refugees who are in prison in Egypt or anywhere in the Middle East, you know, um, they will find my number written in, at the wall. And, and they don't know if Meron is a girl or, or a guy because I have a unisex name. And all they know is they would just say, we don't know who Meron is, but we found the number at the prison. Or sometimes it could be refugees that are drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. And, and so they would call and, and, and say, uh, please help us. After God, uh, we leave our lives in your hand, which I don't want to because we're talking about 800, 700, 900 people in one boat that, that's fit for 100 person. Uh, they are very overcrowded. They are doomed to die in a minute. And then you have the European bureaucracy that does not, nobody wants to help people because helping rescue these people would mean taking them into your country. So I'm just left um, by myself trying to figure out how do I send them help because they keep calling and screaming, not realizing the situation. And I would always ask, just give me the location uh, and then call the Italian Coast Guards. And the Italian Coast Guards would say, no, I'll call the Maltese. They are near Malta. And Malta would say, call Italy. So sometimes it goes back and forth, 70 hours, 78 hours until help reach. Sometimes the water is up to here and, and people don't know, you know, it, it, it just makes you that kind of cruelty. You know, I, I hate the people that put them in a boat, the greedy people that are char overcharging these people. We're talking about the poorest of the poorest can buy boat. It's not people that could uh, buy a flight ticket or something, but uh, on their way, you know, they are kidnapped, these people, they are tortured. For ransom, we're talking about the poorest of the poorest uh, people are extorted for sixty thousand dollars a person. Sometimes it goes up seventy thousand dollars a person. Where you just have to depend on on our uh, on our community because these families cannot raise anything. I remember when I start with uh, the ransom, when people start getting kidnapped and start calling me. There was this priest that I used to talk to. He was uh, 36 and he was kidnapped on, on, so the kidnappers, what they start doing is because they know Eritreans are fleeing en masse because of the dictatorship. The, the, so the kidnappers wait in Sudan, which is like the neighboring country. That's where we flee to. So right at the borders, they wait for you and pretend to help you to show you where the immigration is, where to ask asylum. But instead you are put in a trafficker's car where you will be sold off to Egyptians or elsewhere, where you will be tortured for ransom for months and months. Sometimes it goes on like for two years until the full money ransom is paid. So this priest is one of the first group that I spoke to. And 36 just fled because he, he served in the military for 18 years or something. So he got tired of the situation and decided to flee. And then he got kidnapped. 
taken to Egypt in the Sinai and he's being tortured. His voice was very weak. So he was tortured more because he was a priest and because the torturers are also, I don't see them as religious, but they pretend to be religious enough and they, they would say they are Muslims that torture people, and <laughs> which was crazy. But this man, for being a priest, he's, he's being tortured more. So at that time, you know, he was really sick. And, and, and uh, the, the other hostages one day called me and, and said, sorry, Maron, but uh, the, the priest died. And I had just interviewed him, I don't know, maybe an hour ago or two hours ago. I could tell that his voice was very weak. And they said, please contact his family. We cannot call them. But because uh, the traffickers, what they do is they don't, when your loved one has died, they don't let you know. They still charge you and you believe that you're paying to get him released, but he's already dead. Wow, terrific. Yeah. So the hostages were worried and they were like, please call his family. This is his family's number, which they found on his, uh, on a packet. It was written his family's uh, telephone numbers. So I called, when I called that phone number, I asked for his sister. And so the person that answered the phone says, oh, it's a village. Uh, Call back tomorrow. At this time, I'll have to send someone because it's so rural area. They don't even have a phone. His family doesn't even own a phone. So they sent someone. And the next day, I'm talking to someone who's claiming to be his sister. And then I said, oh, uh, so what are you guys doing for him? And, she, and then she explained to me, no, actually, I grew up with him. I'm like his sister, but his sister is going around to different villages and collecting money for his release. So his whole village sold everything they own, cattle and some of those that had gold, sold gold, and still wasn't enough. So they had, because he was a priest, he was highly liked and well respected in the villages in the area because he was the only priest. So... Because the money that his village raised was not enough. They had, his sister had to go to the second village. And the second village sold all their own. And the money was 19500 But she needed $500 more. That's when the person dies. Wow. Uh, and she was already in the third village collecting, trying to collect the 500 left. So the reason I'm telling you this story is that we are so poor that this guy left Eritrea to have for a better life, but he got his family poorer than they were. He got his own village poorer than they were in the second village and the third village, but still they couldn't even manage to save him. So this is how money is collected often. And, and as a result of this, over 10,000 of my people died uh, because they couldn't pay ransom. Uh, for me, it became too much. So I started raising money to pay ransom and, and because I just could not understand in this time that there is slavery, that people are being tortured and chained, dehumanized uh, in a very sadistic way. It's not even about money only, but it's about humiliating. Uh, they would force two best friends, if they see two men that left together and they were best friends, they would just force them to rape each other, just to humiliate them so that they are not friends anymore, so that there is shame. Uh, they could force a father to rape his daughter, they can force his brothers rape his sister. Just It's just for fun. Uh, so we're talking about like in one of the most cruelest things that I've ever heard, uh, heard in my life. And it totally changed my life as well because I could not understand that people, human beings can be this cruel. Uh, so basically this is my activism and this is what I do. I'm sorry, I, I, I spoke too long. Yeah, no, no, that's a really good uh, context, very horrific context in terms of... <laughs> what is happening to people who are just trying to get freedom. So what do you think about, I guess, the 
it's probably like really ethically challenging as well because in that way where you're thinking about well do we pay the ransom then we're sort of funding these traffickers and slaver types but at the same time if you don't pay the ransom then these people are just stuck and and so i guess it's also kind of a challenging thing because the person who's leaving and trying to go out of the country to have a better life are the other people in their town or their village begrudging them trying to leave or are they saying no go out and try to you know try to get freedom i mean parents don't tell you to leave no child tells his his or her parents that they are living nobody does so when you escape it's not planned like i'm gonna go in three months this way or that way it's it's just the second you get a chance you flee there is no preparation no one tells their parents often so the, the the traffickers and the smugglers are so creative so what they do is they tell these young people oh you don't have to pay now zero down payment to get there and, and but you pay us once you are to the last closest to the last destination so the parents are in you know uh, every parent and all of us the people that live in diaspora we we tell our loved ones to wait wherever they are that we will find them a legal way a safe way you know if you pay money, like $30,000, you can get someone here as long as there is money, you know, either through fake passport or there are different means. Or you can marry someone for $30,000, for $25,000 and get a full status to any country you want. But these young people know that the process to, to get to Europe safely will take years and years and years because they've seen those that left before them. It has taken years for them. So they, they, they just want to take the risk of, you know, they will tell you, uh, I'd rather die trying than dying under this dictatorship because they feel it's one of the uh, a dictatorship that you cannot penetrate because, you know, this time it's our own that are oppressing us. It's not outsiders. And this time it, they know us. They speak the same language that they like us. And this time the, the government has done that in each house they have an informant. So you, your brother could be an informant, you don't really know, because to survive, every everyone has turned into an informant. Your mother could be an informant just so that she could survive, also, so that she can get food from the government. So they give rations for those that are informants. They give uh, movement, I mean, to move around, they give you permission paper to move around because you are an informant. So there is a privilege being an informant. So for this reason, no one trusts anybody. So everybody hates the government. Everybody would love to do something about it but uh what one thing the government is good at is you know throwing this mistrustful rumors so that one doesn't trust the other and things so for that reason we are trans the diaspora is trying but i don't believe the diaspora will ever free the people inside unless and the people inside there's no young people so you need young people to revolt because all the young people are kept in the middle of nowhere with no media no internet they have no clue what goes on Sometimes I get amazed because we are neighbors to neighbor. I get phone calls from Eritreans that actually flee to Yemen because Yemen is our neighbor. So you're like, Yemen is right now. I mean, people are fleeing from Yemen for how many years? But sadly, my people, because there is no information, there is no nothing that they hear about it. So, of course, these people, they just flee to wherever they find. And then they are stuck in the middle of the war in Yemen between the Houthis and the others. And you're like, you don't really know what to do. You always say, but why would you flee to Yemen? And they say that, but Yemen is the closest to, from where I was militarized, the close, the only place to flee is to Yemen. So um, for my people, you know, revolting like the Arab Spring or elsewhere is going to take time unless our mothers and grandmothers start doing something protesting. 
I don't see that happening anytime soon. And, and the dictatorship is, is being emboldened on a daily basis because of the refugee-related issues. Like European Union and others are supporting uh, these tyrants that are oppressing us as well. Very sad to hear. And so in terms of today, like what's your focus today? Uh, what stuff are you working on in this um, area? So, I, I, you know, after listening to so much cries of, of the refugees, I just got tired. I said, that's it, because I've cried enough for 18 years. I've been doing this, and I, I said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. So it's, now I hand down the traffickers that, that did all this. I don't accept phone calls anymore. And I've already have young activists doing that. Yeah. And I guess just for context as well, about how many refugees did you end up helping? I mean, it's it's a lot. Um, just in the Mediterranean alone, I don't like to talk about it, but over 20,000 probably. Um, that's just uh, the sea uh, rescue. Um, but, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds that I paid ransom for to rescue others from uh, elsewhere as well. But I, I don't think about numbers. I, I never think about that, to be honest. Back to the show in a moment. The events at exchanges and lending platforms over the last few weeks have been an important reminder of how important it is to take control of your Bitcoin keys. Holding your Bitcoin with someone else puts you at risk of block withdrawals when you need your Bitcoin most, or even worse, having your Bitcoin caught up in someone else's insolvency. This is where Unchained Capital can help. Unchained offers concierge onboarding. This is a personalized service to guide you through setting up cold storage and withdrawing from an exchange to keys you control. They ship the required hardware to you, they walk you through setup over a video call, and you get help with withdrawals from exchanges, and they can also cover any questions you have during the process. After your setup, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your own keys. So if you're one of those people who has been putting off taking your Bitcoin off the exchange, concierge onboarding is a simple way to get it done sooner rather than later. So go today, go to unchained.com slash concierge, and at the checkout, get $50 off with the promo code LIVERA. Now, are you a builder in the Bitcoin and Lightning space? Voltage can help you. They have constructed the leading enterprise-grade Lightning solution for Bitcoin builders who are creating the future of financial technology and Layer 2 applications. You don't have to think of Lightning as an afterthought. Voltage now makes it really hassle-free for you to integrate or build on Lightning. This could be useful for you whether you are scaling nodes instantly by the thousands or whether you are looking for some quality liquidity easily. This might have been a headache in the past, but it's now very simplified. So go and get your node up and running in two minutes by visiting voltage.cloud. And on the theme of learning to self-custody, my favorite tool is the cold card. You can get this over at coinkite.com. Now, it looks like a little calculator, so it looks very unassuming, but it has so many features and functionality and security really packed inside of this device. Now, if you are a beginner and you're worried about how to self-custody, well, it's pretty simple. You can just get a cable and plug it into your computer and use it easily with wallets like Sparrow or Spectre Desktop or Electrum. Now, if you're more intermediate or advanced, you'll appreciate that there are all kinds of ways that you can really take it to the next level and use all kinds of different features like passphrases, brick me pin, duress pin, you can use multi-signature, you can use BIP85, you can use CDXOR. There's a range of features that you will really enjoy learning about and using as part of your Bitcoin security setup. So if you're interested, go to coinkite.com and order your cold card there. And don't forget, even if you have your hardware wallet device already, you can get a metal seat back up there. The seat plate is available. That's all over at coinkite.com. And now back to the show. Yeah. 
Well, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, it's a lot. So, yeah, so uh, you were saying you have, nowadays, you, there are other people who are helping in what you used to do? Yeah, exactly. So, young activists that I inspired later when I decided to retire from radio and, and, and from talking to refugees on the phone, I didn't want to just um, leave it void so that there is no one. So, I had to train to a young activist, Vanessa Tahaye. She's also a former HRF, um, also a Freedom Forum speaker. Uh, so I, she created a hotline uh, where I, together we designed it, uh, where there is always someone 24 hours that will answer through WhatsApp, Facebook, or different means. So that means people will reach them anytime. So I'm happy with that. And um, then I just start focusing into researching about these traffickers. Who are they? Where is the money going? Who is behind them? So I start collaborating with uh, different um, authorities in the world, like police departments in Europe, US, from all over the world, you know, um, different uh, prosecutors and uh, police start coming and, and asking for information because when you're talking to refugees, so you have so much information. And then I understood, ah, okay, so uh, these traffickers, they are wanted, so I can collaborate even though I hate what Europe is doing at the same time because... They are blocking these people so that there is no there is no safe way to get to Europe. On top of it, I mean, European Union, the so-called European Union that's supposed to be champions of human rights, is actually now financing coast guards that are the smugglers themselves. They are financing to keep them wherever it is, do whatever you want to, beat them up if you want to, humiliate them if you want, as long as you don't do it in, in, in the European waters. So often people talk about Black Lives Matter. We see the brutality in the U.S., but Europe is more brutal to, to, towards blacks and browns rather than the U.S. actually. It's just not that visible because people don't care when they see 200 Syrians dying uh, in, in Greece or, or 800 Sub-Saharan Africans dying in the Mediterranean Sea on their way to Italy. Uh, it has become a common sense that no one even think about it, but um, it's our governments and our tax money, and that pisses me off as an European citizen as well. That, but having said that, at the same time, I do work with them because the people that are exploiting and, and abusing these refugees, the traffickers, are wanted by many European countries and also African countries, Asian countries, Americans, uh, you name it, most of them do come to me and, and, and we collaborate because I, I I know more about the traffickers than they do because it's a, I've been keeping information for I don't know how many years. So now um, I have researchers in different countries that, that, that investigate these things for me and, and that's uh, where Bitcoin comes in. <laughs> Fantastic. And so I guess, yeah, could you maybe at a high level, have you had any success with let's say going after track of traffickers or information that you provided went on to later help stop these traffickers oh yeah we just had two years ago i identified over 50 in one country and and so we got three uh how was it four in another country so we get total nine people get arrested but throughout the years probably 20, 25 uh, traffickers. With my help, you know, like whether it's the U.S. Uh, has arrested two big traffickers before and it was with my help because they had no clue that the person's the real name or what the person was living. So by providing the right location and things, yeah, many get arrested and I, I plan, um, there are too many, you know, it's not even uh, one person hasn't been arrested. And also you have the people that are behind because often, you know, you have the known smugglers but, and traffickers, but there's always... 
a high level person on top that's protecting these people. And, and that's why I, I do most of my research is trying to figure out who is higher up and, and where is the money going. And, and so it became like a lifetime uh, dedication for me because I've, I've heard so much cruelty. Um, I had to notify so many mothers that their sons have died, even though I've never met their sons. Um, and I feel like someone has to pay for it. I mean, we cannot just, okay, the Europeans and others don't care because we're Africans. That's why uh, we are left with ransom or there's no other option. And that's why we pay ransom, even though we know it encourages the traffickers, but there's not nothing. You know, in the same place we're talking about in Egypt, Sinai, when my people were kidnapped there, over 10,000 at one time, the same time, there were two Americans kidnapped in the same area. And the U.S. got them out within 48 hours. We don't know what, what they did, but they got them out. That's the point. But at that time, for my people, nobody cared. Uh, so at last, what you do, you just say, even though it's wrong, you just, I cannot let a child, because when a child was being tortured, a two-year-old child, I just, I couldn't, I, I, I decided I have to pay and, and so when you don't have an option, you do it. Yeah, that's sad. But uh, it's also good to hear that some of the information you've helped provide has helped lead to stopping some of the traffickers. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your approach nowadays with the researchers and what you're doing and maybe also uh, where you're using Bitcoin. Uh, so as I said, I have researchers in Ethiopia, I have researchers in Uganda, many places in Africa that do basically my research is always about human trafficking and following the money or exploitation of refugees. So uh, these refugee, this, uh, researchers, um, especially those in Ethiopia, for example, um, it's, Ethiopia is becoming into Eritrea, becoming like a dictatorship. It's in an early of st- stage of dictatorship, but there is a civil war, there is an ethnic cleansing going on, there is a genocide happening in Ethiopia right now. So being an activist is dangerous to be an activist in Ethiopia right now. And, and, and just associating with me could mean death sentence to many. And it has happened before where over 200 um, people that were in contact with me were arrested and sentenced for over 10 years just for having in contact with me. Uh, so it was always difficult sending money. You know, I used to use my friends uh, to use it because if I send via Western Union, not only is it expensive, but that your name is um, recorded and that person needs an ID. Uh, so it was always difficult. And I had to send using Hawala. Uh, and how well a system is that you give someone money here and then they give money to your family or to whoever you're sending. But it's, it's never, there is no guarantee with it as well. You just give it to someone you don't know, hoping that it will, it will reach your family. And it normally does. But anything can happen. But we're talking about people sending $100,000 through Hawala systems. And so, you know, any minute, anything can happen. And I've heard stories of people disappearing with your money. So, you know, when I took the HRF Bitcoin workshop, the way it was explained at the workshop was it just made sense, even though I've attended hundreds of Bitcoin workshops before, but I've never paid attention or it, didn't, it just didn't speak to me, maybe. But uh, when HRF did the um, online workshop, uh, so we had miners from Venezuela explaining why they start mining why are they using Bitcoin and how did it sell, help their community? And also, when you're fighting against dictatorship, I, it just clicked on to me. And then I said, yeah, I mean, to take the dictatorship's power, you just have to take their money. And, and that's where it hurts the most. Uh, and not only, but it frees the people as well. Because in Eritrea, if you have a million dollars in your bank account, you're not allowed to take more than 
200 a month, 200 dollars. And for a business person, it's 500 a month. That's it. Even though you have millions in your account, but the government decides how much money you're supposed to take out. Let's say I want to get married and I have enough money in my bank account. And I go and I, I say, oh, I need 100,000 because I'm going to get married. And they actually sit down with you, do the budget for you and say, how many people are you inviting? 50. Okay, this should be enough for 50 people <laughs> from your own money. They take that level of control over your finances. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, most businessmen, they, 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 they prefer to keep their money outside. But uh, exchanging money in black market is just doesn't even exist. I mean, it exists, but it's, it's the government that controls the black market as well. Uh, there is no free person that can exchange money because uh, the government will find out within a day or two. They have all informants all over the place and, and people are arrested for exchanging money. Or if you are caught with cash, more than the 200 that I told you that you're supposed to take out in a month, then there will be questions, where did you get this cash? And, and you can get arrested as well. So it's a scary place to be. So um, after taking the HRF um, uh, workshop, um, I just, you know, it made sense, you know, the wallets, uh, the lightning wallets, it was so interesting to hear about it. And, and right away I started using, uh, and, and I decided, let me teach my, my researchers the same way that it was taught to me, the same workshop. I, I, I gave the same workshop to those, um, my researchers in Uganda, in, in, in Sudan, and, and, and in Eritrea, and, and Ethiopia. Uh, suddenly, uh, it became so easy for them as well. And, and uh, right away, I sent $50 each to every one of them. And so they were so happy that they just went to Paxful and exchanged it and, and got back the money that they needed. But it was fast and they had the option of keeping it, keeping it in Bitcoin or exchanging it. But what's the best of all is that the government doesn't even have to know that, people, that these people got paid or that it's from Meron. Or anything. Um, so I loved it. And I started giving uh, workshops for refugees in different places. So what I do is between 10 to 15 refugees at a time, uh, I give the same workshop that, that was given to me by HRF, uh, except it takes them more time because for these people, they're not technical. Some of them have never even used the phone in their life. Some of them have never seen a computer in their life. So it becomes the HRF workshop was a two-day workshop, but I give like a five-day workshop sometimes because if they don't understand it, I, I just have to to do it again and again until it makes sense to them and they can start using and receiving money. Uh, so now it's 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 working great and translated the little Bitcoin into Tigrinya into my language that has helped a lot as well. Uh, and now. Possibly, I'm, I'm thinking of mining somewhere in Africa. I'm discussing about, oh, great. <laughs> about that as well. So we will see what happens. But um, right now, I'll be in Africa myself on the ground, helping single mothers. And of course, it's um, the angel is going to be integrated into Bitcoin, where my angel will be giving um, teaching skills to single mothers. I'm a single mother myself. I know how hard it is to, to be a single mother, and, and especially for the child, because when you're the son or the daughter of a single mother in, in a poor country, that means you're doomed. I'm nothing. So I felt like this is where I want to focus uh, and teach them skills, but to make them owners of their lives so that they can have a business uh, that's integrated to Bitcoin. It's, it's where designing it. It's a headache right now, but uh, 
hopefully in few months we will be up starting and, and, and hopefully in four or five months we will have set up the mining as well somewhere in Africa. Fascinating. And so when you are teaching a person about Bitcoin, what sort of tools and things are you teaching them? I mean, just explaining the whole block blockchain system uh, to begin with, um, how it works. And, uh, and then often, you know, um, the question is, but where do I buy Bitcoin? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to tell you where to buy your Bitcoin. I'll just explain to you. Um, how it works, but I'm not going to say go to Coinbase or Binance or this or that, you know. And so often it's that kind of questions and, and, and worry about what if um, the value goes down. And I always try to explain to them, yeah, but it will always go up because it was worth this much uh, this many years ago and now it's worth this much. But unless you think of it in a long term, uh, don't look at it. I try to tell them not to look at it as, as, as long as you're not saving, it doesn't really matter to them if Bitcoin is up or down for the refugees. But I do give like a very, you know, it's a very secretive and things, but I have given like to at least 40, 50 businessmen as well, because these are the only people that can live in and out. So for the refugees, it's a way of just accepting money via wallet. We use Blue Wallet and Moon Wallet, but for the businessman, it has become something powerful. You know, uh, they could they just couldn't believe that there is this option. And as I told you, our government has been holding them, like choking them to death for many years. I mean, even the rich people are not safe in that country. So now at least many of the businessmen have learned about uh, Bitcoin and they start keeping their money in Bitcoin outside and where the government doesn't have to keep their money. So for me... Uh, the businessmen are more interesting because these are the people that hold the power inside Eritrea. For the refugees, it's just a life-saving tool that they can access within a second. And often the reason I teach to refugees is because no refugee have an ID. Often when they flee, they flee without nothing. Even if they're left with their ID or passport, they'll always be taken by the traffickers before you get to your destination anyways. Um so for them, it's a life-saving matter. It's it's having an ID. For them, the, having a wallet is like having an ID because they need an ID to receive money from relatives abroad uh, because they live of remittance. Uh, so it, it's a, a life-changing for them. Just having, knowing this technology, how to receive and how to exchange it or how to keep it. So they have learned all the basics and, and they're happy. I'm happy with it. But as I say, I'm more excited with the businessmen because I believe they're the ones that can topple the dictatorship. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And so, as you were saying, and this is the last stat I've seen on this, is that 1.7 billion people around the world are unbanked. And in many cases, it's because they don't have a KYC document or an address or etc. that would allow them to get a normal bank account. But obviously, with Bitcoin, you can install, say, Moon Wallet on your phone, and you can now create lightning invoices or spend in lightning invoices and whether you are a researcher in the different countries, whether you are a refugee, whether you are a businessman who wants to save a little bit outside the system or potentially even if you're a politician, right? Like it's kind of like everyone is going to want to use Bitcoin, but we can obviously see a very strong use here from a human rights perspective as well. Yeah. It's 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 great. I mean, it's it's a great tool and then my only regret is that I didn't get into it earlier <laughs> <laughs> as many of us uh, do so when it comes to let's say a businessman who's using 
Bitcoin. For them, I guess it might be, are you seeing them in a case where maybe they are even paying suppliers with Bitcoin or is it more just like they're using it more like their own store of value? Yeah, they, they are keeping their money in Bitcoin and also paying suppliers in uh, most of these businessmen are, um, you know, they come and back and forth to Dubai. So I had to come to Dubai so many times just to meet them in person and, and show them in person. <laughs> So as I said, um, these are the only people that have money and, and these are the only people that are suffering because they cannot even touch their money. So why should they keep it inside? Whatever they can, they try to put in a bank because they are forced to. If, they, if you don't put a little money in your bank, the government will start asking, how come you haven't deposited your money? But at least most of their money, now they know that how to keep it and how to receive it, how to spend it or how to save it and how to buy things with it. Um, they order a lot of stuff from China and elsewhere. I mean, um, because they do import it and export, they do mostly importing. So some of them are using Bitcoin if they find, I mean, if there is a way to the things that they are looking for. Everybody uses a Bitcoin payment system, but where they can, they do. So they're really happy uh, with this. And, and the reason I go in person and meet them is so that they can do the same thing to those that are not allowed to flee from here, to, to leave Eritrea because to have a passport from the age of five until you are 50, you have to be discharged from a military. So nobody younger than 50 year old can, can have a passport to begin with. Uh, so many of the businessmen inside Eritrea, they cannot even leave the country. They depend on these people that import stuff. So the people that import stuff, these are the only ones privileged enough to, to go back and forth. And, and so that's why my focus is on them. These are the people that can reach uh, on a daily basis and, and teach it to those that they trust. And, and it works in the country, in your trades. Like it, it's often mouse to mouse. The rumors go and everybody want to learn. And but the little Bitcoin book was already smuggled into the country. But um, everybody shared the PDF with everybody they know. So I believe slowly uh, more and more will hear about it and more and more will use it, even though uh, as I said, the internet penetration is like 3%. Uh, but still, those that leave uh, will find a way to keep others' money. They always do. And, and uh, that's why my focus is on those that are able to, to go back and forth. Yeah, interesting. And also, from a privacy perspective, now, privacy is a complicated topic because it's all about who are you trying to be private from as well. Now, it's also fair to say that Bitcoin is not necessarily private by default, but depending on how you use it, you can be private with it. And it allows you to also receive money just outside of the standard fiat system. So from your perspective and from your your discussions with the people you're speaking with, have they been able to be private with Bitcoin or is that not a concern for them? Or what's the situation there? I mean, so far it's private. The government is not even focusing there. As I said, like, um, as long as they control the internet, they will manage to control everything that you do within the country. But those that are able to leave, at least when they're outside of, um, Eritrea, they can access whatever it is that they want, or they can send money, receive money, and, and do a lot of things with it. But when you are in the country, um, it's just, there is no privacy. Because you have to go to internet cafe and, and when you are in the internet cafe, you, you, the computer is registered to your ID from what time until what time that you use that computer and where you work and ID number and all that. Too much questions. And if you have to buy like um, a mobile data, it's, it will be registered under your name uh, when you buy it as well. So there's no really privacy. And another thing that I've been working on is, you know, there's a way to, to give internet to Eritrea, to, the, to my people. I'll need $1 million to do that. 
But there's a way where you can send internet via satellite dish. Uh, so anybody that has satellite dish can download free internet. Uh, so I've been working on this for many years, and um, it's a dream that I, I really want to do. And, and somehow, hopefully, one day I'll raise that money and, and give my people the internet that they deserve. And then they can use Bitcoin or anything that they want, just like us. So the only thing keeping my people from using Bitcoin is the internet penetration i see uh, so hopefully uh, we will solve that yeah right and yeah that's really interesting so i guess the typical privacy wallet tools that people talk about in the bitcoin world things like samurai wallet join market sparrow wallet some of these tools are probably not accessible to people inside eritrea but are obviously accessible to uh, the diaspora the people who are outside uh and of course are accessible or even just simple phone wallets like moon wallet uh are accessible to people in the diaspora or your researchers you're working with you can as an example if you are running a crowdfunding operation where you're say receiving some sats and then you can pay to researchers who are on the ground helping you with your work um, so is that essentially is that part of how you're running the operation yeah Right now, that's what I'm doing. Like, um, I just um, I haven't received any, but HRF donated last year for this project so that I would be able to do. And, and so what I use the money for is just as an incentive to the refugees so that they can take the workshop seriously. Like it could be four days, five days, as I said. So at the end of when they are done with it, then I give them $50 worth of satoshis. Uh, sent to their blue or moon wallet, uh, where then they decide. So this is yeah, sure. Yeah, and are the workshops operated? Are you you're doing those in Africa or are they in Sweden or? I'm doing it from Sweden, but now um, starting next month, I'm moving to Africa. So uh, I'll be living in different countries in Africa, and I, I try to move around and 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 do this in person. Uh, but I'm gonna do it to to teach it to single mothers. Okay. So to those that have nothing, so. I want to focus next on, on trying to find some kind of solution, Bitcoin-related solution to these single African mothers that go through all kinds of hardship. So I'm talking to so many people and taking all kinds of advices from different people on how I should do it and which way you should do it. But also, I'm also, you know, I've looked into lands where I could mine and things as well. Uh, and, and, and spoken with Alex Gladstein about it. And uh, we will see where it goes, but uh, there is a plan. I'm thinking about it. And, and, and hopefully after a few months, and um, I'll come here and say, oh, I've started mining as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really fascinating what you're doing. And uh, I think listeners will really appreciate hearing your story. So for anyone who wants to keep up with what you're doing or follow you or support you, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, I'm active on Twitter. I don't use social media that much, but Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter. So you can always find me on Twitter, Merolina. Fantastic. So listeners, I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, Meron, thank you very much for joining me. I really enjoyed chatting. Thank you for having me. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels.